good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. back to horror queers we're talking public fisting we're talking hanky code etiquette and we're talking al pacino dancing really badly and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking the most public use of poppers in a film i've seen in a very very long time oh gosh 1980 called and poppers were poppin um 2020 called and poppers are poppin it's not like canada where they're illegal <laughs> I've told you, I, this is off the market for us. <laughs> I really wish that when we saw each other last year, I would have given you, like, not, not given you because you can't take it across the border, but, like, let you use some pop. Have you used poppers? Sorry, I'm <laughs> getting off topic. <laughs> we'll have plenty to discuss about poppers, a.k.a. amyl nitrate, for those not in the know. You can Google it, or we'll just talk about it. <laughs> we are talking William Friedkin's cruising, everybody, and this mm-hmm. is a special occasion because it's our 100th episode, and Ooh. Joe, A, yay us! Yay us! B, why did we pick cruising for this week? So cruising has been routinely one of our most requested episodes, dating all the way back to when we first started doing our article series on Bloody Disgusting. Mm-hmm. People were like, hey, you guys going to do cruising? Cruising's like a super gay text. You going to talk about it? And we were like, eh, maybe, later. I felt like a child because honestly, the it's the same thing with Nightmare on Elm Street too. Like people kept before we even covered it, people kept asking us to do it, and the more people asked us to do it, I was like, "Fuck no, no, I don't wanna." <laughs> well, it's so obvious, right? Like when you talk about like really important queer texts, especially in the horror genre, obviously Nightmare Two comes up. This movie does come up a lot as well, and I, I'd actually never seen it before, so I waited until this so I could like have like be be, be the virgin. I, I'm I'm the virgin on this. <laughs> you had seen it before, but, you know, you're not, like, a professor or anything, right? <laughs> I mean, I've been a professor, you jackass. <laughs> but not of, not of like... It's not my full-time job. There you go. So, luckily for us, <laughs> we, smooth, have a, smooth. we have a very special guest. I know, I was trying to be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think that out. Uh, we have a very special guest on this who is a professor mm-hmm. and has also uh, taught this film before. So, yeah. all right, everyone. He is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Denver with a focus on images of youth rebellion on screen, especially in the horror genre. But you may have actually seen him chime in in the exceptional documentary, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Please welcome Andrew Scahill. Hey guys, thanks for having me. This is really exciting, 100th episode. I, I, I mean, we mentioned this offline, Andrew, but like ever since we saw Scream Queen, we were like, oh, fuck, we got to get that guy. And we just we thought, oh, Cruising's the best one. And it just kind of worked out. Like We didn't even know you had taught this film before. So it was so nice to have that happen. Yeah, I mean, kind of like, uh, like yeah, I, I avoided this film for a long time. I had it in my head that it was this sort of bad object film. And when I finally did go watch it, I really had a kind of different take on it, I think. Yeah, I find that that's the most fascinating thing about this film is the different ways that people have engaged with it and how its legacy has changed over time. 
that's kind of where I am too. I actually had never heard of it until James Franco started doing his interior period leather bar period movie. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> yeah, and well, because my husband was watching, and he was like, oh, you know, it's that movie Cruising. And I mean, this is like, what, 2012, 2013? I just, I had no idea. So I did a little research and I was like, well, that's fascinating. But I just, I never got around to watching it until last night. And then I watched Interior Leather Bar tonight. One of them is way better than the other. Ooh, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you guys read about the, um, the call that uh, Franco made to Friedkin to ask him what was in that missing 40 minutes? No. Uh, and apparently Friedkin no. says it's, it's just basically gay porn. <laughs> I was disappointed well, yeah. when I saw Interior Leather Bar for that reason. Well, right. It's. I mean, we're not gonna get. I, honestly, we can probably talk about it more, and when we get to like why that movie was made, but we won't talk about it too much. But yeah, that movie was mismarketed. Like, I was expecting forty minutes of porn, essentially, and it is an hour of not that. Talking. It's a vanity project for a person who doesn't understand the queer community but desperately wants to get fucked. Uh, wow, fair, fair. I mean, it's also really uncomfortable with how he handles the Al Pacino stand-in actor, mm. like. It felt borderline rapey to me. Ooh. It felt like but. all the scenes that it would fast forward through in a porn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Andrew, we're very pro uh, no. porn story. <laughs> no, 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 no. Good. No, I, I gotcha. I'm all about the setup. So I want the hot professor, like, taking the student home after class to tutor him. And, like, I want that setup of, like, okay, like, watching the clothes come off. Or, like, the best friends are like, oh, I've never done anything before. But, like, you know, we're playing video games and my, my hand touches your leg. Like, I, I like that before I get to the actual fucking. <laughs> yeah, the pizza boy, he delivers. No, no, no. But, like, see, that that's, like, too stupid porny, you know? Oh, my God, Trace. That's literally the title of an iconic gay porn movie. Oh. Pizza boy, he delivers. <laughs> Andrew, we're just going to have to educate him through this. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm the baby gay here, and I fully admit that. But, Andrew, what is your relationship with cruising? How did you come across this, and what got you so interested in this? Um, you know, I actually decided to teach a class on film censorship, and that was my approach to this film, because I, I got really interested in what, what kind of show a broad range of ways that censorship functions um, in culture. So kind of manifest uh, censorship, you're shutting down the film in exhibition, or you're trying to keep it from being made. And this is just a really interesting case in which it was protested during the production, and it was not conservatives, but um, progressives who, who tried to shut down production of this film mm -hmm. and keep it from being kind of brought to the public. So that I got really fascinated in. Yeah, I love the idea of progressive censorship because they seem like they should be opposing. And yet, when you look at the context of this particular film, at the moment that it's getting made, I can 100% understand why these activists were like, yeah, we're going to disrupt this fucking film set because this straight dude is not making this homophobic film. Sure. Or, you know, it's a it's another gay killer film. And we saw this again with like Basic Instinct, right? Yeah. Uh, 92. But, you know, what's really interesting to me about these censorship campaigns is that censorship often makes really strange bedfellows. And so they talk about how uh, during the Basic Instinct protests, on the same side of the picket line would be religious right protesters and gays and lesbians. Right? Yeah, um, so I weird. find that fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I think this is where I I'm going to kind of fall out of the loop here, because, yeah, I watching this last night, I was like, I actually, I mean, because I got the arrow blue, and there isn't a ton of extra features. There's one featurette on the making of it, and one featurette on, like, how Freakin responded to the criticism of it. And honestly, hearing him talk about it, I was like, you know, I didn't walk away from this film feeling like it was overtly homophobic. Now, of course, 
in the research that I did, and I was like, oh, that does mm-hmm. make sense. I don't think there was any ill intent here. But again, as Joe, Joe, you and I have discussed multiple times, intent and impact are two very different things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into that more as we go through like what this film entails. I'm yeah. kind of nervous. It's kind of like going in like, like a scream for us, Joe, where I'm like, this is a really big film it is i don't think we're going to be able to get everything out in like an hour and a half but we're going to do our darndest (laughs) (laughs) we'll do do pajama party style just talk all night just get there we go (laughs) welcome back to hour five we are halfway through the film (laughs) (laughs) well okay so maybe i can go ahead and just go in with kind of how this film came to be and then we can kind of go from there does that sound good go ahead perfect okay so we've got Philip D'Antoni, who had produced William Friedkin's. And again, listeners, if you don't know who William Friedkin is, he's mostly known for directing The Exorcist and The French mm-hmm. Connection. And Jade. Dude, okay, how many times have we <laughs> mentioned Jade before? And I saw that last night, and I was like, what the fuck, Friedkin? Is this Jade with um, the guy from CSI Miami? Yes! Yeah, Caruso and Linda Fiorentino. And Joe Esterhaus wrote it, a.k.a. Yeah, the writer of Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Oh, yeah, God, double trouble. Huh. It's insane. Mm-hmm. And not a good movie. I don't recommend. No, oh, I've heard it's terrible. It, 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 <laughs> it ended like the erotic thriller genre, basically. I don't think any yes. movie could convince me that that guy is sexy is part of the oh, problem. No. <laughs> Just sad, sad David Caruso. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, though, D'Antoni had produced The French Connection for Friedkin in 1971. He approached Friedkin with the idea of directing a film based on New York Times reporter Gerald Walker's 1970 novel, Cruising, about mm-hmm. a serial killer targeting New York City's gay community. I find this interesting because I haven't seen it or the play or the new Ryan Murphy adaptation, but in 1970, Friedkin directed The Boys in the Band. So he'd he'd just done like a major piece of queer cinema, but he wasn't interested in doing cruising because I guess by the time the novel came to him, it it was, I guess, too far along. The novel didn't depict the leather S&M culture. And he was like, well, the gay scene has evolved beyond what's in the book. And so I don't have any interest in that, which... I think it's really weird because I'm like, well, you can just adapt it to what the gay scene is, but <laughs> okay. So he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But then following a series of unsolved killings in gay leather bars in the early 70s, they were written in articles by Village Voice journalist Arthur Bell. Freakin was like, you know what? Maybe there's something there. So <laughs> a little more topical. Yeah, a little bit. So he had a police officer friend named Randy Jurgensen who had gone into the same sort of deep cover that Al Pacino's character Steve Burns does in the film. And he also talked to Paul Bateson. Now, Paul Bateson is a doctor's assistant who had appeared in The Exorcist. He's not an actor. But he talked to him while he was being prosecuted for another murder and during this process was implicated in those gay leather bar killings. I'm conflicted on this, because basically you've got Friedkin talking to his cop friend Jurgensen, who's like, yeah, I I did undercover in the gay bar scene, this is what I experienced, this is what I saw. But then he's also talking to the purported murderer of said Mm -hmm. gay man, never convicted, it was he was just implicated, about it while he's incarcerated. Yeah, a little silence of the Lambsy. Yeah! Mm -hmm. Bateman's story is kind of sad, the more I read about it, because I think he was just um, a a drunk, he was an alcoholic who who Mm -hmm. murdered this uh, man who was also, uh, I believe, a reporter um, for money, and he sounds like police offered him leniency on his case if he would admit to these other killings. Oh no. Yeah, and he has a weird echo in this film, right? Oh yeah. Uh, And and I find that really fascinating, I I have to believe that's part of Friedkin's authorship as well. 
Yeah, there's a lot of real-life parallels that can be considered uncomfortable when you start to dig into them. Like, it lends the film a certain air of authenticity, but then you're also like, ah, shit, how much of this is actually just depicting uncomfortable realities that freaking is just pulling from real life? Well, that's the thing, right? Honestly, I was watching this last night, and so many of it, I was like, this is a bit bizarre. And we'll get to, like, the big scene. Like, I mean, again, it could be any of them. You never know. <laughs> I was going to say, does it involve a certain half-naked man backhanding people? And, yeah. But, again, in these interviews, like, you have Randy Jurgensen saying, yeah, I, I've seen this in real life. This mm-hmm. actually happened. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And so you get the feel that Freakin was going for almost a documentary, like, you're just observing, an observing approach. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. ethnographic is how I often yes. describe this film. But mm. it's like he takes all these things and it's just that he doesn't take a stance on anything. He's like, okay, these all these things happen. Let's just put them in this movie. So let's just put all these weird puzzle pieces together, even though we're not really going to devote enough time to explore mm. a lot of the individual things, which I think is where people got offended by it. Sure. There's definitely that. I think it's also like when you read some of the quotes and I think Friedkin has changed his tune over time. Mm. But when he was being questioned about this at the time of filming, he was like, well, this really doesn't have anything to do with the queer community. It's really just a police procedural murder mystery that happens to be said in the queer community. And you're like, ooh, that is a loaded statement because you can't go into a marginalized community and say, well, I'm just using you as a backdrop. Sure. I do have a direct quote from him that's more contemporary, but I'll I'll wait until we get kind of into the reception of it. Okay. So the film was intended to depict, yeah, gay cruising as it existed at a bar called Mineshaft in New York. That bar is not named in the film because they wouldn't allow him to film there, but he, he basically just, like, wanted to just film this lifestyle, which is weird, right? It's like half documentary, half narrative... When I was trying to think about the genre, because I've seen so many people that were like, oh, it's a horror film. I was like, it's kind of a slasher mixed with a giallo, which, of course, mm-hmm. is a subset of slasher, mixed with film noir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a weird mix, but I found it oddly hypnotic to watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a power to this film that I think is undeniable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the community protested against the production of the films. Protests started at the urging of Arthur Bell, who wrote about the murders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were urged to disrupt filming. They asked gay businesses to bar filmmakers from their premises. There were scenes where the protests were so loud, they spent an hour and a half ADRing like, each scene of footage. People would get on rooftops and shine mirrors into the rooms where they were filming to fuck up the lighting of the film. Like, it was really, really, really intense. Um, and that's why also a lot of the audio was largely overdubbed, because there was just too much noise. <laughs> <laughs> I think apart from Basic Instinct, this is the only other film that I've heard of such aggressive protesting, like to the extent where people actively tried to shut down the production. It was never a question of, well, let's give this film a chance. It was very much like, do not let this move forward. Yeah. And Basic Instinct protests use a lot of the same kind of Gestapo tactics. Uh, My favorite story about Basic Instinct is that when they're shooting street scenes, they would hold up signs that said, like, honk if you love the giants. And so cars (laughs) would just honk, like, all day going down that street. (laughs) That's clever. I think that the the weird thing, the the thing, though, that this movie has that Basic Instinct doesn't have is that you have members of the queer community actively participating in these scenes. Mm -hmm. What do y'all make of that? Gosh, you know what I mean? When you hear that there is a film being shot that wants to incorporate your community and you're starved for representations of yourself, Mm -hmm. 
you don't see the totality of the product. Right. And so I, I, I don't think many people kind of like understood exactly what this um, story was going to be covering. I love how diplomatic you are, Andrew. I was like, oh, that is such a sensitive, well thought out answer. <laughs> Me, I'm like, oh, it's just a bunch of gays who want to be on camera in like their leather gear. Also that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Me I mean, and Randy are going to be down there fisting at eight o'clock. You guys want to come? Why are they always Southern when I do this? <laughs> I actually find the the leather community quite fascinating. I, I've never taken a, I, I've never participated in it, but I, I have gone through the introductory phases of purchasing a harness for me. I, mean, I haven't bought one yet, but I'm My like... God, you make it sound like a class that you take online, Trace. No, no, no. No, I had a friend that was like, no, no, you, it's like you go through a fitting. It's like Devil Wears Prada in there. Wow. <laughs> this is advanced uh, stuff then. Well, the important thing to acknowledge is that one of the reasons the queer community who was protesting the film is that they were concerned about the depiction of gay lifestyles. Yeah. Because this is a specific subset. So in the film, they even make mention that this is a hardcore leather and S&M subgroup of the queer community. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that A, leather and S&M are not necessarily synonymous. Right. But also B, there's a bunch of vanilla as fuck queers (laughs) who, you know, they might be saying, oh, we're fighting for equal rights. We're fighting for recognition as human beings we're worried that normal, quote unquote, normal, average straight people, if they see men fisting each other in this movie, are going to think, well, there's confirmation of deviant lifestyles. But that's where it kind of gets murky for me, right? Because it's like, okay, well, so if you're going, I mean, I mean, again, I can't say for certainty, because I have not participated in the leather or S&M communities. But watching it, I'm like, okay, well, it feels authentic. And so on that level, I appreciate it. But on another level, I'm like, yeah, obviously people in 1980, like pre-AIDS crisis, going to see this movie, they're like, oh, that's what the the gays are like. (laughs) Yeah. And it's both. That's one of the things that makes cruising fascinating. Mm -hmm. I don't have a ton more on the production, only that I'm so, I mean, to kind of rewind back to our interior leather bar conversation, the MPA originally gave this film an X rating. Apparently it was a about two hours and 20 minutes long. <laughs> Woof. Yeah. Friedkin claims he took the film before the MPA board 50 times at a cost of $50,000 and deleted 40 minutes of footage from the original cut to secure an R rating. His story has kind of changed, though. Like I know. It's, it's like, mmm, <laughs> freaking, you've got an answer for every time this comes up, and it's always just a little different, girl. Well, it's either just sex, or apparently there's, like, plot twists and turns, which the film no longer takes... Mm-hmm. The identity of the killer becomes more clear. Pacino's, like, that whole thing becomes more clear. Mm-hmm. And that footage was apparently trashed by the distributor, United Artists. And I'm just like, well, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, how convenient that we'll never be able to know. <laughs> so, yeah, basically this film comes out on February 15th, 1980. And it was released with a disclaimer mm-hmm. that... Again, Friedkin's story changes. He says sometimes that, oh, like a close friend of his said to put it in front of the film. But then it was like, oh, no, the distributor said to put it in front of the film. Then it was, oh, no, the MPA said to put it in front of the film. (sighs) The disclaimer said, this film is not intended to be an indictment of the homosexual world. It is set in one small segment of the world, which is not meant to be representative of the whole. Now, that wasn't on my Blu-ray, so I think it was only in the theatrical, like, release of the film. It got removed when they released the deluxe edition, and then when that went out of print and then Arrow released theirs, they kept it off. 
Got it. Uh, well, gay film historian Vito Russo disputes that, saying that the disclaimer itself is an admission of guilt. <laughs> I mean, it, it does reek of, hey, we're on the defense because we know this is going to be potentially problematic, but also we made this movie, so here it is, disclaimer. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The film at the time, so it, it got an obscenely negative reception. I actually have a full list of like criticisms that I could pull, but I figure they'll, this will just come in as we talk about the <laughs> they'll film. They'll come up organically, right? <laughs> It has, I mean, as y'all have both said, it has kind of received, I don't even want to say it's a reappraisal, because I know there are still people that find this movie incredibly offensive. Yeah. And this will, I'll kind of end here, and then we can kind of move into the film itself, or whatever you want to talk about. Friedkin's quote now, or at least more contemporary, is... Cruising came out around a time that gay liberation had made enormous strides among the general public. It also came out around the time that AIDS was given a name. I simply used the background of the SNM world to do a murder mystery. It was based on a real case. And that's basically what you had said earlier, Joe. Mm-hmm. But the timing of it was difficult because of what had been happening to gay people. Of course, it was not really set in a gay world. It was the SNM world. But many critics who wrote for gay publications or the underground press felt that the film was not the best put forward as far as gay liberation was concerned. And they were right. <laughs> now it's reevaluated as a film. It could be found wanting as a film, but it no longer has to undergo the stigma of being an anti-gay screed, which it never was. Yeah. I think that's actually a very politically sensitive and also astute statement. I think it does speak to what you mentioned, Trace, which is that I don't think the film was made with a sense of malice. Like, I don't think Friedkin wrote it or directed it with the intention of saying, like, bad gays, they kill other gays. (laughs) But... At the same time, I think it took him quite a long while to realize what it was that people were taking issue with, because I get the sense when he first talks about it, when the film was getting made, that he really was just like, I don't understand what the fuss is about. Yeah, I, mean, I think, too, this comes out in this period where gays and lesbians were really looking at representation as a battleground. And yeah. so, like, GLAD kind of emerges during this period. And really, the, the, the rhetoric was of, like, positive representations. And it wasn't until, you know, much later that that term even gets interrogated, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. positive representations of gays were sexless, non-threatening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They wanted marriage and they wanted to adopt children. They wanted to kind of adopt the markers of heteronormativity. And it's not until yeah. later that we kind of even reassess the power of, uh, say, a queer villain. So true. Yeah, I mean, because I think I read even somewhere that um, Brian De Palma had considered directing this, but either he turned it down or I guess when Freakin came back on. And then, and then, of course, De Palma, though, would go and do Dress to Kill a year later. Yeah. So it's like, let's go to this other problematic queer story. <laughs> I actually find Dress to Kill a much more homophobic film than this oh, film. Oh, so, so, yeah. so much more. Yeah. But I think that, I think it's a lack of understanding. Because I also, I don't, uh, I don't know if I want to, I'll wait for a Dress to Kill episode. But I do think that the, the way that some, at least some members of the queer community that I've seen re-embrace this film, it's almost the same way that our community has re-embraced the word queer, right? And granted, Joe and I have received... Not as much now, but like, especially (laughs) when we're doing the articles, people that were very angry that we would even call ourselves the horror queers because it's a generational thing. It It very much is. And we would always acknowledge that we actually used to have like a a preface on our articles that said like, we know that this word's controversial. This is, and this is why we're using it. We are co-opting it, but obviously we don't expect everyone else to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. We probably lost some readers that way, but (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I find this very, it kind of like, um, it's an interesting parallel. 
Well, and I think it's very apt when you're talking about something like cruising, because our relationship to it would be very different from somebody who was in their 40s and their 50s versus their 20s, maybe. Mm -hmm. I could even imagine people coming to this film fresh, having not really understood or heard much about the criticisms or the political climate in which it was made, and just being like, it's a bit of an inept thriller. Right, right. You know, and I think the issue too is like what sort of range of representation is there, right? So I I, I love a queer villain, but if there were only queer villains, would I like that character as much? Exactly. Right. Yeah. You need a little bit of depth. You need a little bit of range. You need a little bit of diversity. Yeah. I mean, the villain, open parentheses, S, close parentheses in this film <laughs> I mean, at least with the Stuart character, like, it's not, you know, you have the scene of the dead dad, which we'll talk about later, but, like, you get, like, a hint of a motive, but it's never explicitly stated, so all we can do, as with most of this movie, is make it up ourselves. We have to fill in these blanks. I think that's good for a film to do, mm. but when it's dealing with something like a marginalized community, it's like, okay, well, if someone is coming into this with prejudice against that community, they're gonna fill in those blanks yeah. with bad things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a question to pose kind of at the end of it, but spoiler alert, can a movie like Cruising get made in the year 2020? <laughs> like, would it be able to even look like this? Because I love the ambiguity of this film, but at the time in 1980, the ambiguity ended up really hurting it. And I do find it a little bit fascinating and a little bit ironic as well that they actively blame the controversy for the movie's box office failure. Because I'm just like, maybe in New York, but I'm not sure that that translates to a North American release. thought about that too, because the closest film, a modern queer film that I can think of to compare to this actually is Knife Plus Heart. Yeah. 100%. Both stylistically, narratively, but I do think that that film, I mean, obviously there's queer people like making that film. <laughs> Yep. which is which is key and i think it shows <laughs> it's not it's not the straight savior the straight white savior coming in to help us <laughs> yeah and if folks want to hear our thoughts we obviously did record an episode on that last year i almost feel like at some point i want to go back and talk about that movie again though just because my relationship with it has deepened in the time since we saw it i think that's fair hmm. Should we go into it? Yeah, I think I think we can go into it. Because, yeah, then we'll get into all these little little tidbits. The little tidbits, yeah. Because this film is almost made up of scenes and moments and characters and choices. Yeah. Okay. So the film opens with a few establishing sequences. We open with body parts being found in the Hudson River. And we follow two patrolmen, one of whom, DeSimmon, played by Joe Spinell. They end up picking up a pair of... This is interesting, almost mm -hmm. right off the bat. I was like, are these drag queens? Are these trans characters? There's definitely the implication that they're sex workers, and only one of them gets named, although I actually had to look it up on Wikipedia to find that name, which is Da Vinci, the informant that we see later, played by Gene Davis. And right off the bat, these characters, if we're going to refer to them as drag queen, I guess if we can well, say she. It's interesting, though. So I, in my notes, I refer to them as drag queens. I saw articles written post-2010 that were referring to them as transvestites. Oh, no. Yeah, exactly. Just and I was like... An asterisk on that, folks. We don't use that. No, yeah, we don't, use, we don't use that word. We should say that part of our trouble is kind of how they're, how they're costumed, right? 
Mm-hmm. That they're dressed in leather gear that looks really similar to the men um, walking yes. around in that environment. And they do have makeup on, but it's not designed to be an illusion, I'm going to say. No. Right? Right. And so, I, yeah, I, I had, recording my notes, I think I, I said transgender, but, you know, I think that that is up for debate. Yeah. No, you're right, because, because there, there's a certain, like, Oh god, not hyperbolicness to drag queens, but like eccentricity to drag queens, you know, especially with the makeup and the performance. Right. And you're right, yeah, they, they seem more au naturel in, in their femininity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even the scene later when we see Da Vinci in the police precinct, she is still dressed this way. So this is not a costume that she's wearing out mm-hmm. for a night. It's not what she wears, quote unquote, on the job when she's looking to pick up Johns. I don't know. I totally found the character of Da Vinci fascinating Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i really wish we could have gotten more or even just some insight into this relationship because they are a bit of a figurehead just as a stand-in for a relationship with the queer community and the police well and they're both also immediately raped yes so sorry trigger warning for anyone who hasn't seen this film (laughs) yeah there was a sexual assault and we've talked about like my not prejudice but like it was weird. Like, when I saw this, I wasn't thinking of it as rape. And then I read an article and I was like, oh, fuck, that is rape. Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I have been in similar situations where I was forced to perform fellatio on someone. But in situations where I felt like I had to, maybe out of like a, I don't know, like I didn't want to say no to like make it hurt this person's feelings. So I did it anyway, which is not the same as what happens here. But it was like, I don't know, it was, it was a weird thing where I was like, fuck, I've got to like retrain my brain to like, oh, yeah, this is, it, it is rape. It just, it kind of like bothered me that I didn't see that as I was watching it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. this is this is cops um, coercing these uh, women into sexual acts. So absolutely, and I think this is a film about those types of power dynamics. And yeah. so, and what's interesting to me is um, making the, the women that they pick up more androgynous. It was interesting mm-hmm. to me because it made the sex they had more queer. Okay, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Because they're not um, picking up prostitutes that look like women. It's quite obvious that they were men, you know? Um, And so I I found that really fascinating in terms of just the slipperiness of identity in the sexual identity of this film from the very start, right? That in some ways power trumps genitalia. Yeah. You're right. I did think it's fascinating that there are these two presumably straight... Sure male cops that are going out and looking i mean yeah i guess it's the power exchange because it's not even that they're looking for women or people with vaginas they get off on the power of like forcing this woman to blow them and it's just it's so complex and the film doesn't really devote a lot of time to unpacking it because there's killing to be done but it's yeah it's just a really bizarre thing these straight and presumably straight men to sexually assault queer people it just it's so But I do think it's really significant that this is more or less the second scene that we see in this film. So the film opens with these body parts being found, and we kind of get a sense, okay, this is not the first time this has happened. We've got other parts that we can't identify. Mm -hmm. And then we meet these two. And these are not our main characters. These are barely even secondary characters. But it immediately establishes a fraught abusive relationship between the queer community and the police Mm -hmm. as well as the fact that there is these gender sex power dynamics at play if you think of this film as an ambiguous presentation wherein the al pacino character could be 
a closeted murderer who is also a member of the police who goes undercover within the queer community, this is immediately teasing you to the idea that the killer could be coming from within the police department because Mm -hmm. that relationship already exists. They're cruising for victims, quite literally. Yes. As, As a serial killer would, right? And so they're not patrolling the area. They're specifically looking for vulnerable targets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it can't be your bitch ex-wife who's just run off and left you, then why not these women that you see who are literally just walking by? Yeah. There's something really interesting about this opening, too. These two cops in the squad car felt very reminiscent of Taxi Driver, right? Yeah. When they're oh, talking yeah. about, like, look at all the filth. It's going to explode one day, which is really well, similar to Travis Bickle's line. No, because mm-hmm. they, they, they have that line yeah, where he goes, you used to be able to play stickball on these streets. Christ, what's happening? And it's like, oh, because now it's been co-opted by the queer community. <laughs> I also think it's important to mention, like, this is the same year that Maniac Cop comes out. There's a hotbed issue with police intimidation and abuse of power. Well, and how prescient, right? Considering the time we're living in now. (laughs) This is why we're covering this film now. Right. (laughs) We planned it all along. But I think, at least in the part of the cop, there's a sense of, like, this was once territory that straight people owned, and now they don't. And it's become this kind of urban jungle. Let's take it back. And I think, and y'all may disagree, because I'm, I'm sure as we get to towards the third act, we might disagree on this, but I actually think the film, if it does take any stance on anything, it actually does take an anti-police stance. Oh, I agree. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's cut to Interior Leather Bar as we are introduced to first victim, Lauren Lucas, <laughs> played by Arnaldo Santana. And he picks up a dulcet tone stranger who is voiced by James Satorius. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to go into this? So immediately when the killer spoke, I was like, he sounds like he's dubbed. Like it did not, I could tell immediately. Mm-hmm. And so I did, I paused the movie to do some research. <laughs> <laughs> First time viewing, pause. I, well, I was just like, what? The, like, why does this sound so obviously dubbed? And again, that's where I was getting Giallo vibes from it too, right? Because like, even mm-hmm. though you're not seeing his lips move, it just sounded off. Which I actually think aids in the, but like how unsettling the killer is is in this movie. <laughs> right, because this, this film does something that you, you shouldn't, which is to give you different bodies, but the same voice. Yeah. Yes. And so basically, the same voice does voice all the killers, but a different actor portrays the killers in different scenes. Mm-hmm. So the victim in this scene is played by Arnaldo Santana, and the killer is Larry Atlas. However, in the second killing in the park, Larry Atlas, the killer in the first murder, is the victim. And he is being killed by actor Richard Cox. And then later, the guy that walks into the peep show is Arnaldo Santana, the victim from the first murder. Yeah. And he is still killed by Richard Cox, who's the killer in the park. So it's intentional on Friedkin's part to make it confusing. And also, all these actors look alike. Yeah, I mean, it's baked into the premise of the film, which is that the killer is going after the same type of body shape height look and so on but i think it's also a clever conceit if you think of this film as a mystery to say oh we're playing so fast and loose with these red herrings that no one will be able to figure it out because we are literally changing out the actor playing this character so you will never figure it out it's a cheat though right but oh it's a total cheat yeah yeah it's one of the things like okay when you hear the director say it you're like oh okay i see what he's trying to do here but when you're watching it you're like what the fuck is going on and again 
that's a giallo element to me. <laughs> right. Well, let me offer up something that may like muddle the water more or yeah. maybe make it more interesting. Um, as I was watching it this time around, I was thinking of it almost as a, a vampire film without vampires. Oh. These people kind of get murdered, and we see them again, almost as if they're raising from the dead, and we get this sort of contagion effect to uh, these killers. Oh, how right. also timely. Yeah, right? So there's, this, well, there's this scene late in where Al Pacino like, goes to Nancy's apartment, and, and, he, and he has to ask to come in. I was like, huh, that's really interesting. Oh. Right. That's also where you can get a negative reading of it, too, because it's like, oh, you're spreading the gay, which is, of course, what people like to think because the gay agenda except it's disease in this one <laughs> and, and i think this was a moment in which like vampirism became an operational metaphor for queerness right mm-hmm. and, and like fright night and lost boys you know what i mean well yeah. and I, I think imagine had this come out two years later you know in the like, during the AIDS crisis yeah yes exactly mm-hmm. and like i mean like your argument is totally sound i 100 percent agree with you because i do think that there is definitely something about oh these straight men are catching the gay and then turning into psychotic killers which is a little problematic my, my son moved to the city and now he's gay right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then if you actually had that because this is a year it comes out about a, a year and a half before the first like reports of i'm sorry the, the actual new york times article headline was rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals um that was july of 81 mm-hmm. wow imagine coming out after that i mean again, like, it, the argument still makes sense but it would seem more offensive to me if this had come out after that <laughs> Right. Well, and I'm thinking back to our discussion on Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker that we had back in Pride Month, where Mm -hmm. that film was made pre-AIDS crisis, and then it was re-released in different parts of the country after those reports had started to come out. And I remember we speculated about just how much that film changes when you're looking at, oh, we've got a sympathetic gay character, and then, oh, suddenly now we're into the AIDS crisis. I don't want to see that gay character anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think one of the other fascinating things about the choice to have these actors swap out roles and have all of these men look so similar. Like, it's not just these men. It's so many of the men in the club scenes look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a slight commentary on the way that costuming can change us into Mm -hmm. a bit of a hive mind. But I thought it's kind of fascinating that the killer keeps killing people who look like him. Because it just reminded me of this gay tendency where we date ourselves yes boyfriend twin (laughs) well i mean i think it's also like we tend to hang around people like in like the subsets of the queer community like whatever um i mean not even kink but just like you know just different factions yeah they all tend to look alike and i mean i know this film isn't trying to make a statement on race i don't really want to get too deep into it but it's just a bunch of white guys who look the same in this bar so white considering that this is meant to be brooklyn in 1980 i was like where the fuck are the black men and the hispanic men and it's like when they do show up it's in these really problematic minor roles yeah which we'll get to (laughs) i can't help but think of the killer with his kind of like uh, scruffy black hair and his really prominent cleft chin looks so much like john travolta to me Yes. Yeah. One hundred percent. Like you know, given what we surmise about John Travolta, um, mm-hmm. I, I think I think it itself could be a commentary. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's just so much to this movie when you start to dig into it, right? I'm really glad you said that, Andrew, though, because Joe had uh, he had called out. Um... Oh, I said Adam Driver. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Totally. 
But no, but because when Joe said that, I was like, ah, I, I see it. But there's someone around this time period, and it totally is like late 70s John Travolta. That is exactly who that looks like. It's interesting because the t- first two actors they have play the killer, they both have a really strong cleft chin. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was like, huh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so weird to think, too, that this role originally, not the killer's role, but the Al Pacino role, originally Friedkin wanted Richard Gere. Because he was androgynous. I kind of would have loved that. <laughs> it would have played completely differently, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Freakin has said, like, he initially did not like Pacino's performance, but, like, seeing the fear in his eyes, like, the real fear actually worked for the part. He yeah, looks I see that. terrified in this movie. I don't find Pacino attractive, period, but... <laughs> mm. To each their own, right? Yeah. I'm sure there's plenty who are like, oh, yeah, yeah, break now. Oh, no, I'm sure there are. <laughs> 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 okay, so... So this character, Lauren Lucas, they end up having consensual sex, and then... Poppers! <laughs> poppers, yep. And then we get a little back and forth, and then the knife comes out, he's tied up, and he's stabbed repeatedly in the back, at which point the killer says, you made me do that. I actually really liked this scene. Not not because it's like a gay man dying. I actually thought the setup and the staging of the murder was really, really suspenseful and well done. It reminded me, and I always say this for murder scenes that really scare the crap out of me, but it always reminds me of that picnic scene in Fincher's 7. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, he's talked about this like two weeks ago, so... It's just, it's very unsettling. It's a very unsettling scene. It's not pleasant to watch. I think it's appropriately grotesque, but not like overtly gory. Right. And I think because it is kind of sadomasochistic play, it, mm-hmm. you don't know where the boundary of consent is in this scene. Yes. Because mm-hmm. it, it starts hot. Like there's quite a bit of kink. Lucas opens up this suitcase and there has got to be what do you think a two foot long dildo fist in yeah. There? yeah but like he's in a jock strap he's a very fit attractive man oh he's he's very pretty i i really i really enjoyed his uh body the body language between the two of them though it's enticing it's hot and i do think it's one of the things that the film gains credit for over history is this idea that there is an attractiveness and a heat like gay sex can be fucking hot and erotic right and this film whether you find it effective as a thriller whether you like the way that Freed can handle the material i would say it depicts queer lifestyle in a very sexualized fashion mm-hmm. of which i haven't really seen in other films there's this article by um, a queer theorist called uh, leo barsani called is the rectum a grave Yes, um, yes, yes. Do you know this? So anyway, one of the things he says is that like the rectum is a grave for like heterosexuality because what it forces them to do is to go, a man can be a receptive partner and also be masculine. Mm-hmm. And that like crushes masculinity at a kind of visceral <laughs> level. <laughs> Wait, I'm having an identity crisis. Right, right. How can that be? And I think this film does something really interesting with that. And for you can, for me, evidence is like a kind of a good understanding of, of like the possibility of, of sexuality beyond just passive and active, you know? Well, and mm-hmm. I think that's too the thing, because one of the one of the common complaints of the film was that, you know, the queer sexuality, it's just there to shock. Like, that's why you have the fisting scene in here. Mm-hmm. Right. This scene up until the murder is like the antithesis of that. The only thing is that we don't get an actual sex scene. Now, granted, no. I don't know if I want one knowing what happens to the victim. Right. 
But it did, yeah, like y'all said, like this felt very sensual and very hot, and it didn't seem like it was there to shock. Even was... those scenes where you do have like sex in the bars, it's actually not felt like a horror film. You know what I mean? No. Um, no. And especially the scene right before this, I kind of took note. You have this like slow lateral slide across the bar, and it's very well lit. Mm-hmm. Better lit than most gay bars I've ever seen, you know. And um, and there's funk music playing, so you don't have the, like sonic cues of horror. So I find that really kind of like an interesting choice in his like ethnographic gaze. Yeah, gaze is the right term because, of course, you know, the title is very much prominently displayed here. But I like the emphasis on the visual components of cruising, right? Like there's so much eye fucking in this movie. And really, that is an inherent part of the queer lifestyle, particularly at certain times in our history, where you needed to be able to spot a potential partner without any kind of dialogue. It had to be done with your eyes. It had to be done with a curl of the lip. It had to be in your body language. You know, and I've had experiences like on the subway or something where a guy's staring me down and I go, I don't know if he wants to beat me up or fuck me. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. And so Mm -hmm. the looks, I think, and I think this film hits on that really well, how that look of aggression can be either sexual or violent, or both. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's known by this whole community that there is a murderer on the loose cruising for gay men. And they're all still out there. (laughs) And they're all still out there. But it's like, I mean, I can't even imagine like how terrifying that would be. And again, like it's 1980, there's no smartphone, there's no easy access to help. They're in an area where the cops don't give a shit about them. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying it's easier now, like this can still very much happen, but that's an aspect of queer life that people that aren't queer don't fully grasp all the time. Yeah, I would say women maybe do have an understanding of that, where it's like their bodies are just constantly being surveyed and objectified and like they're not safe in different situations, but it is unique. Yeah, and there's the, like, the particularity of the closet, right? So if you are sexually assaulted, there may be a whole constellation of anxieties that come with disclosing that event, right? Right. Yeah. So I'm curious. So after this murder, we cut to the morgue. You know, we're introduced to this Dr. Rifkin character played by Barton Heyman. And this is where we learn that there's a physical aberration or malfunction mm-hmm. in this killer because his semen doesn't contain sperm. Right. This is one of those, is this homophobia? Is this idea that like, oh, well, the killer is shooting blanks and is therefore less than. He is not a full man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something like, I mean, because like, impotence is always something that like, is like always detriment- detrimental to masculinity. Because if you can't procreate, then what what good are you as a human being, right? <laughs> Obviously, it's a problem for women, too, if they're like barren or whatever. But I read it that way. I very much read it. And it is important, of course, that you say this killer and not the killer. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I did kind of read it as like, I don't even know if it's homophobic, actually. It's more like it's someone like that is feeling emasculated. Right. Not necessarily by being gay, because the lack of sperm doesn't mean he's gay, but he's taking it out on a gay man. Right, because this is a film all about like displacing, you know, sex onto violence, right? Mm-hmm. And when we see this in the cops, right, the the parallels that the the film creates between the sadistic things that the cops do and the sort of action in in the clubs, except in the clubs, it's like a controlled and consensual space. The cops are just beating people up to get out their libido and their aggression. Yeah, as we see when we uh, finally get an interrogation scene. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, okay, so we're, we're introduced to the Al Pacino character, Steve Burns. He's tasked to go undercover by Captain Edelson, played by Paul Sorvino. And, okay, so let's talk about an important relationship that could feel undercooked to people who don't buy into the idea that Steve Burns will become a murderer. So he moves into this apartment and he meets a playwright neighbor named Ted Bailey, played by Don Ted. Scardino. Oh. Well, of course you love him. He's a twink. <laughs> he's, he's so cute. He's super cute. I love that they immediately go out for brunch. <laughs> but he only eats seafood at dinner time. Otherwise, he balloons up like Shelly Winters, yes. which is a very of the time joke. I find it interesting because these like 10 minutes of their kind of relationship, it feels like a rom-com setup. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Neighbors who meet in the hallway and like, oh, can I you know, help you with your stuff? Let's go to lunch. It's a total mm. rom-com. It is. It's adorable. That's why, though, so I agree with you, Joe, and that I do think the second half of this film drags a bit for me, but it's because I like the slashery elements of the first half, and I like the immersion of Pacino's character in the gay world and seeing his reaction to it. Mm-hmm. You lose that around the halfway mark and it becomes more of a typical like police thriller noir film. And as we've discussed, I don't really care for noir. Well, I think also we were losing all of these interesting secondary characters, right? We're not involved in any of his police colleagues. He's not really immersed in the gay world anymore. It's just a long stakeout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I just don't find that as interesting as watching Al Pacino look horrified that he might get grazed by a gay man. (laughs) <laughs> but he do- he doesn't mind the Ted thing. And so, yeah, put this in your back pocket for later, listeners. He seems very much to like Ted. Yes. Planting the seed of homosexuality. Yes, but the seed doesn't have any sperm. Well, there's this thing operating in the background, too, where, like, the previous tenant was also gay. We find his porn in the, the closet, right? Mm-hmm. And then we learn that that previous tenant also had an affair with Ted. And so it's mm-hmm. a way in which, like... Pacino's character seems to be becoming, you know, this this uh, yeah. previous tenant. Yeah. yeah, there's a weird, almost paranoia kind of surreal element. Like, is Steve losing his mind amidst this undercover work? Which, of course, has been confronted in other films where the police lose themselves in their undercover sting. Yeah. I just find it fascinating because I know of people who find the Ted Bailey character to be a contributing factor to the film's homophobia because he is a literal representation of what we should all aspire to be. He is the normalized, non-threatening gay, right? He's just that quiet guy who writes plays and he's so accommodating and gentle and nice. And then, of course, the film is like, oh, do you like this character? Well, now he's dead. I mean, that's what you sign up for in the horror film. They're always going to kill, you know, your emotional attachments. Yeah to link this to showgirls though because i will say that (laughs) (laughs) oh okay (laughs) no because because when ted was revealed to have been killed i i I audibly gasped because i did did not see it coming we have forgotten about him he's been off screen for like no (laughs) yeah we we haven't seen him the whole second half of the film but it does kind of remind me of the treatment of the molly character how she exists in showgirls to just be the nice that she's the embodiment of good so of course she has to get raped in the in the last act right Mm. right. yeah yeah It is interesting that the film is willing to take the time to introduce this character and give a little bit of background plot. Like, it does feel, you're right, Andrew, there's almost a rom-com happening off to the side. Like, there could be a version of this film that is just from Ted and Greg's perspective. We just keep meeting these neighbors and accidentally fucking them and then screwing up our relationship. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) 
Okay, so Steve begins to ingratiate himself into the bar. He's getting chummy with the bartenders and the cruising scene. He does make an occasional hanky mistake. Do we want to talk a little bit about the hankies? Can I, can I yes. tell you that my favorite scene before that is um, when he applies makeup to go to the gay bar? <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a real severe reading, uh, a severe misreading of what that space calls for. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, right. It's because it's that straight man's idea that like gay men are just they want to be women secretly, you know? Right. <laughs> How interesting. So I didn't read it as that. I totally read it as, oh, I'm going into a sporting arena. I've mm, got to put on my war paint. Like war paint. Interesting. I, I think but, that's really cool. I do think. I think this film is kind of like a Heart of Darkness plot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, where he's Kurtz kind of going into the, the, the wild. But that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it as war paint. <laughs> but I do love okay. the moments where he has to, like, sort of acknowledge that he's not hot enough to get hit on. And he goes yes. back to his apartment and starts working out. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I better start packing on the muscle if I want to fit in with this crowd. No, but that's something that's so prevalent in the gay community, too. And as someone who has gained some poundage mm. during covid <laughs> i had a discussion with uh, about gay cruises um with someone recently because i've never been on a gay cruise but i've always been curious different kind of cruise yeah, oh yeah yeah i mean but, but i mean i'm slim like i'm not a large person but i'm not toned muscular like whatever and i was like i just don't think i have the body to go on that and they're like no, no 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 that's the marketing that shows you that i mean obviously those types do exist on gay cruises they are there but right. it's very much a wide array of body types so like even like the same thing for going to fire island i'm like i just don't think i i have the body type to go there but I'm, i've been told it's it's fine <laughs> But also, like, we've all met that homophobic straight guy who's like, I don't want to go to a gay bar because I don't want to get hit on. And you're like, oh no God, one's going to hit yes. on you. <laughs> you're fine. Like, don't worry. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and that is a prevalent idea, right? Where you can see it in the Pacino character. I mean, I don't love Al Pacino, but I think that he plays that innocence, but also that anxiety and almost yeah. that undercurrent of desire where he knows that he needs to do certain things to fit into this world. But also, you have to believe for the purpose of the film that he kind of wants it. Yeah, right? Absolutely. And whether that's a straight man who craves attention and validation, mm -hmm. or a secretly closeted man who is suddenly realizing I want this attention because right. maybe I'm interested. Well, because it's kind of like too, he's already in a relationship with um non-character nancy played by karen allen oh karen allen but but it, yeah it, the gays are a very body conscious group and so he's like oh gotta start working out mm -hmm. <laughs> it's real i love that sequence for seeing his ego get bruised right yeah for, for not being hit on by men uh, or not the hot ones that's the other thing like men do like approach and leer at him but they're unattractive right and yeah. i find that really fascinating I think we've met that guy too who's like you know he wants he wants the attention from the gays but he doesn't what oh, yeah. more right right but i think pacino has to develop this sort of like veiled consciousness you know where it's like i understand myself as who i am but i also understand how i read to other people mm. and to like understand both of those things simultaneously yeah he probably deserves a bit more credit for this performance i think part of it is that those interesting facets get lost as the film goes on sure. yeah i agree Although I will say, in this scene, with the hanky, I do quite enjoy it when the guy comes over and then calls him an asshole. Because he has also oh, been yeah. told by that shop owner what the fucking yellow hanky means and what it means to put it in a certain pocket. And he For sure. That. 
So I had never heard of the Hanky Code before. So, Andrew, have you ever seen a movie called Killer Condom? I was hoping you were going to bring that up. <laughs> that was in the 90s, right? Yeah. So it's a German film from, I want to say, 1996. It's a film that was distributed by Troma, but I don't think they produced it. I think they picked it up. But we, we wrote about it for one of our article series before we started the podcast. And there's a whole gag because it, it's about a killer condom and there's a detective in it and he is gay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll cover this on the show one day. But there's a whole gag where one of the cops is told he has to go to a queer bar mm-hmm. and he tells him to put a yellow hanky in his back pocket. <laughs> He just comes in and he like after like it's like cuts to the next scene and he comes in and he like punches the guy. He's like, You fucker, like you didn't tell me that and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> and so Joe had to explain it to me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how aware a German production from nineteen ninety six was, but I totally read that sequence as a commentary on cruising. Mm, interesting. Mm. That's true. It's the same hanky. And for any listeners that did not watch this film. The light blue hanky in your left back pocket means you want a blowjob. Right pocket means you give one. Green one on the left says you're a hustler. Right side says you're a buyer. And a yellow one on the left means you give a golden shower, a.k.a. water sports. Right side means you receive them. <laughs> and there's only about 15 to 20 to 30 to 50 other colors. That it's you so involved. When I saw him standing there, I wrote in my notes, and I, I, in all caps, why would he pick the yellow hanky? Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Like, it was one of the ones he was educated on. Like, dude, just go with the light blue. That's an easy one. Right? How, how dare you set that little man's hopes afloat, only to crush his dreams. Honestly. Of not getting peed on. Indeed. No shame if that's your king. No, no, not at all. No, I'm, I'm critiquing uh, Steve there. How about you know? Yeah, Steve's an asshole. On this he was right. a dum-dum. Don't advertise so... that in the window if it's not in my size. <laughs> oh, my. So I do also love when Steve goes to precinct night and he is kicked out of the bar for not dressing to code. Yeah, Mm -hmm. got the wrong (laughs) attitude, right? That moment is a little uncomfortable because you can tell that Steve doesn't understand what he's done. And there's almost a reverse threatening aura, right? Where you can see he thinks he might actually get beaten up by Mm. sin. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love it, too, that, that he is a cop, but he's not costumed as a cop that night. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't fit <laughs> yeah. in. I, I love that kind of weird inversion. It's real, real good. <laughs> but this is also the moment that we're introduced to Skip Lee, who is played by Jay Avacone. And he ends up becoming the prime suspect in Steve's eyes. This is also the moment where we start to see more of Steve's confusion because when he's propositioned by Skip, he immediately rushes home so that he can fuck his girlfriend. Yep. Yep. And his sex gets more and more like aggressive. Yeah, aggressive. There you go. It gets more aggressive as the film goes on. Well, so we have one sex scene before this. And um, one thing I wanted to point out is that whenever we have Nancy, we have a very like mannered classical music. Yes. Yeah. So in his first, like, it's not even them having sex with post-coital, where he's laying with Nancy, and there's classical music. It feels very unerotic. And I feel like the film kind of sets that that dialectic up between the classical music of kind of heteronormativity and the raw punk of this queer underground. These sex scenes with Nancy 
even as they become increasingly more aggressive, they're framed in a very different sense than the queer sex scenes, which are far more highly eroticized. So then when you add in that score... This is night and day difference. It's a different film. And I did want to point out, too, so I mean, as I mentioned before, the film had changed a lot of aspects from the book, but Steve himself was actually a major changing point. In the book, he had a whole backstory about how um, he had harassed gays at an off-base bar when he was in the army. He was a racist, um, and he was seemingly asexual, and he did not have a girlfriend. Yeah, the girlfriend was a product of the film, which 100% feels like, oh, we're trying to go for a mass market audience. He'll be more relatable if he's got a girlfriend. Although, yeah. I, I mean, I I think that the film distinctly makes their union unerotic. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're yeah. not a good fit. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like that's purposeful. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What's that John Waters quote where it's like, the life of a heterosexual is so insanely boring and it's like embodied by these scenes? <laughs> That's exactly it. Uh, I feel like it's meant to feel um, inauthentic and kind of dead. Yeah, it's important that we don't really get to see the vibrancy of her giant house porny apartment until the very (laughs) end when you're like, oh, there's the life. All of these potted plants by the window, which we've not really gotten to see. Like there's no life in it. It's open and airy, but it feels (laughs) stilted and dead. Yeah, it's interesting that in that more aggressive scene with Nancy, it's interesting that he's still wearing his leather cuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then the scene right after that, Ted talks about how the previous tenant used to go off and have sex to blow off steam. You know what I mean? And so it's like this, becoming this sort of absent character. It's like the Rebecca of Cruz. I was, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I would love a remake, like, set in this world of Rebecca. (laughs) Honestly, it would have been preferable to whatever the fuck milk toast thing Ben Wheatley just delivered us. Uh, I didn't even want to watch it. It looked awful. It's so boring. But I would love a Rebecca where it's like a kept boy, right? Oh my gosh. Well, no, yeah, right? Like this, whatever this apartment building in New York is, is like the Manderley of this story. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) We are doing this. Oh my (laughs) gosh. He's he's John Travolta's like pilot, right? Or whatever. (laughs) Oh, I love this. Okay, we figured it out. So that is what cruising in 2020 Uh. would look like. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm not going to harp on it too much, but yeah, they remove any queer aspects from Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. So we, what the solution is, we just make the whole thing queer. Yeah, yeah. gross. Flip it. It's Manderley. Uh. <laughs> oh my god! Wait, except now we're shooting it for men.com. <laughs> um, that's also okay. They sometimes do legitimate film that happens to have explicit sex in it. Do it, do it. This is true. Stay tuned for porno queers. <laughs> I dreamed that night of Mantelay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my no. god, coming in here with the big ones. I love it. <laughs> as long as there's a pizza boy somewhere in there. You yeah. better copyright that before you put this on air. Well, we already have the professor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Okay, so we do get a couple more murders. So we have the murder of Eric, who is played by Larry Atlas in Central Park. And then we also have Martino, the 
I'm so bemused by this Martino character. He's the guy who goes to the store and he gets the package and he's driving in his convertible. Oh, the, the fashion designer. Yeah. Yes. So that's a commentary because that was something that Freakin mentioned in, in the one of the featurettes. How, yeah, a lot of men in, in this scene, it was like they live double lives. Oh, I see. By day, yeah, they were like wealthy businessmen, bankers, shop owners, whatever. And by night, they were in this SM community. <sighs> Shocking. You don't know what your neighbors are doing. They could be secret leather fetishists. Because I, I similarly, when, when this scene started, I, I, have, I was like, oh, so now we're following a dressmaker? Mm-hmm. Question mark? <laughs> yeah. Where is this going? So we've got this Martino character, and he's leading the secret double life. And I love the inclusion of a peep show in this film. Because again, I feel like if you were a younger viewer and you came into this, there's a novelty aspect. And yet, for a certain time and in certain big cities, this would have been one of the premier ways of meeting other men, is going to the arcades and, you know, slipping in for some hot action while you're watching the hot action. Mm -hmm. I also do love the way that this is filmed. I love the blood spraying on the screen, specifically on a soaping ass. (laughs) (laughs) That was really fun. But I did want to also point this out, because he also says, after he kills him, you made me do that. Yeah. The actor of this is actually the same actor of the park murder, so it's not the same actor of the bedroom murder in the beginning. I don't know if the park killer says anything. I know he he kind of goes, where are you? I'm waiting for you. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't say the same thing. And so, again, it's just one of those weird things that Freakin does, which... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the original book, there's an insinuation that there's multiple male murders happening in this time period. Like, they may not be chasing one killer. They may be chasing many. In the book, Steve Burns is one of 10 different undercover decoys that has been sent out. And I think in the book, he accidentally kills one of the other decoys and then has to fake the murder and pin it on the killer. Oh, wow. Yeah. That book is less than 200 pages, by the way. So that's a lot of information for less than 200 pages. Right? Yeah. I do want to come back to how you mentioned that this was shot, Trace, because when I was watching it, all I could think of was the scene in The Howling, where Dee Wallace sees the werewolf exposed for the very first time. Oh, yeah. It shot very, very similarly. The Howling comes out the next year. I mean, Joe Dante... I mean, again, this movie, you mentioned the, the, the financial, like, the flop of this movie was, it was an $11 million budget, supposedly, and it made almost $20 million. So, right. I mean, granted, there's, of course, marketing costs and whatever, but I, I would find it easy to believe that Joe Dante went to go see Cruising. Yeah. 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 I, I also think this scene is kind of an invitation to read this, like, on a, on a meta level, you know? Okay. And then we have, like, two spectators in their movie seats that were, you know, watching them in our movie seats. Right. To me, this movie really highlights the idea of um, film as a kind of like identity tourism. So, Mm. you know, by the safety of the movie theater, we can go and try on identities that are not ours and and see how they fit and and maybe leave them behind when we we leave. But sometimes they come with us. And so I read Steve as this sort of like meta cipher for the straight spectator who's using this 90 minute runtime to kind of explore his sexuality. Right, which totally makes sense if you think of this film as one that was actually marketed towards straight audiences, and it was using the queer voyeurism angle as a bit of a selling feature. Right, absolutely. Hmm. 
Because it's interesting, because it's I mean, kind of what we know from, say, like, Brokeback Mountain is that it did much better on DVD, right, than it did in theaters because there's a certain safety to watching it by yourself and kind of inhabiting these these roles. Yeah, not unlike the way that we used to consume pornography. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so now that we've got even more murders, this is where the captain begins to come under pressure from the chief to wrap the case up in whatever way is required. And that becomes very important as we go into the end of the film, because, of course, it's not about finding the right killer. It's about finding any old killer will do. This is like right after like this is all happening. Like, this is when we get the fistings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about fisting is what you're saying. Well, okay, first, I mean, I've seen fisting porn before. I have come across fisting porn and looked at it before. But, like, that, this was in a major motion picture that was released in theaters in 1980. Mm-hmm. Not limited release. It went to theaters, like, widely. Yep. And we have a scene of a guy lubing up his arm and fisting someone. I mean, of course, it's not pornography. Like, we don't actually see, like, fist enter anus. But it's, I, it's more... very clear, even for a straight spectator, what's happening. Yes. You can't confuse what's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's ballsy, right? It is. I mean, it could be even considered balls deep. It... <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think it's elbow deep. Right. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> no, but I mean, and we, we can talk about it more when we're talking about like, could this get made today? But like, literally watching this, I was like, this could not be made today. <laughs> no, absolutely not. This would get slapped with the X rating. Like when you think about, okay, there's 40 minutes of footage. Probably all of it looked like this. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. didn't um, didn't Stranger by the Lake get an X rating? Am I remembering that correctly? Oh. I mean, because that 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 is it's non simulated sex, right? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I then yeah. I mean, I, I'm assuming they went for the not rated moniker. Oh, that's very right. Right. Yeah. And honestly, if you wanted to talk about a fantastic double bill cruising and Stranger by the Lake, you could do a lot worse. I mean, after this, I'm surprised we didn't get a scene of someone sounding. Oh. <laughs> You know, what I think is really interesting about this scene, too, is that we're clearly marking Steve as no longer a foreigner. Like, Steve is now getting in the bar. He's looking for prey, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's no longer sort of cowering in the corner and waiting for men to come to him. Well, even at this point, I think he's actively making inquiries of Skip Lee, right? He is doing his own kind of cruising just under the guise of being a police officer. Well... Also, so after this fisting scene is when we get him to go on his dance, and when he gets his first taste of poppers. I love that it makes everything color. Uh, yes. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that the inhalation of poppers is what makes him, like, loose enough, ha ha ha, to go dancing with someone. I mean, it's not good dancing, it's really shit dancing. It's terrible dancing. It is where he kind of, like, his inhibitions are let go, which, I mean, again, is kind of the point of poppers, but... (laughs) I like that. It's like a literal and metaphorical level that poppers like are a plot point in this film. (laughs) Right. But here's the thing. If you think about this movie, again, as being made for straight audiences, do they understand this reference? No. Even if they think it's cocaine, like they're going to get that, you know, that he took something that makes him feel good. Okay. I'll buy it. I mean, Joe, we watched Demons earlier this year where someone's sniffing cocaine out of a Coke can with a straw. So (laughs) this is true. I guess I just like the idea that there's a secret way to watch this movie where you're going to get more out of it if you understand some of the implications and the references. Oh, that's uh, absolutely true. I do like, though, that it doesn't, like, talk down to its audience by having to explain. I mean, we do get, again, we get the hanky 
right. tutorial, but we don't mm-hmm. get a popper tutorial. And listeners, we've discussed poppers before. You can go Google it. Um, don't Google sounding. Don't do that. <laughs> at least not at work. Oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no shame again. No shame to people who enjoy sounding. But oh my God, it is really hard for me to watch. <laughs> yeah. But wait, 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 wait. What, what, what were you going to say, though? You had something to say about the poppers. About poppers? Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> He's like, no, I've already changed my mind. Thank you. No, but there's something this film does, which um, adds another level of ambiguity, which is that we're not quite clear how much he does with these men, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It cuts away before we see kind of like what happens at that point. We know that he's still undercover, so he hasn't arrested them. And so there's this sort of background happening where like maybe he is having sex with men, right? There's definitely one scene. So the murder of Eric, the guy who gets killed in Central Park, Mm -hmm. we actually see Steve leave with him at one point. Or is it with Stuart? I think it's with Stuart. It might be Stuart. Well, who the fuck knows? (laughs) Who knows? There is a moment where Steve is under a bridge in the park, and he gets cruised by a man that he rejects because apparently he's not hot enough for Steve. Right. That's Stuart. That's Stuart. Okay, so then, yeah, so he leaves with Stuart, which is a very unusual scene because we recognize Stuart as the killer from a previous encounter. Mm Mm-hmm. And we just see them wander off and then Friedkin cuts. It just fades to black. And we know that Steve is okay. I know in the book, this does happen. And it just happens to be on a night when Stuart doesn't have his knife on him. Okay. But do they have sex? Uh, yes. The implication is that they do. Okay. Interesting. But it's, but it's an implication. It's not even explicitly stated in the book. Because that's how I read the film as well. Yeah. But I feel like we have been trained to read queerness in the margins, you know, right? 100%. and in the ellipsis. So we have to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we crave it. We're like, where's the crumb? Where's the kernel? <laughs> Is there an implication of a BJ in that corner? Let me go and find it. There's also something interesting, like in the scene after this, where uh, he, he does take Skip, takes him back to the hotel room. Mm-hmm. You know, something goes wrong with uh, the recording equipment and the police rush in. Oh, Yes. The bumbling cops trying to get that damn wire machine working, I lost. I was like, is this a comedy? There's some keystone cop action going on there. But he is, he's fully naked, tied up, and yes. he seems almost annoyed that they're there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the film almost presents it as, oh, he's annoyed because, like, you came too early. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, no, it's, yeah, I, I was very much like, wait a minute, like, he was totally about to, like, get into it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting, too, that he is presumably a bottom or the the more passive partner in this sexual encounter. I mean, part of it is that he's trying to lure Skip into being an aggressor. But there's also the implication that, yeah, he would be the bottom in this encounter if it went further. Yes. Which is like, oh, my God, but that's not masculine either. But you can hear on the wire that Skip doesn't want to do this. A hundred percent. Yeah. I was uncomfortable listening to that. (laughs) Yeah, it's so much coercion. (laughs) (laughs) Which again, harkens back to that opening scene where the police put someone into a position where they can't say no. Yeah. Side note before we move on, because we're about to get to the interrogation. Did y'all recognize Al Bundy himself as one of the cops in the restaurant steak scene? Oh, no. Okay, yeah. Yes. This is Ed O'Neill's film debut, and he is one of the cops who orders a steak when they're going to see what Skip does. God. 
That scene is so funny to me. They're so worried about appearing naturalistic that they can barely order a steak without sounding stiff. Uh Also, tax dollars at work, right? It's a per diem. You're on the job. (laughs) It's also a very aggressive steak knife. Yeah, it really is. It looks like a hunting knife. (laughs) How big are these steaks, gentlemen? You have to kill the cow and then eat it. (laughs) I think it's a New York state now. I think it's what they look like in New York. Right. 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 New York code of conduct. (laughs) Okay, so they have Skip where they want him, quote unquote. They thankfully do not break Steve's cover at this point. So they take them both in and they interrogate them. During this interrogation comes one of the most infamous scenes in this film, which is when a large black man in a jockstrap, who is played by Henry Judd Baker, arbitrarily walks into the room and backhands them. Gentlemen, what do we make of this? (laughs) Well, A, I do want to say, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the only instance in the film that we get the F-slur. Mm-hmm. I think there may be another use. Uh, We get cocksucker later. um, Yes. But that, yeah, yeah, you might be right there. Okay. I was surprised because I was expecting a lot more of it in this film, to be honest. So I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't. But sorry. Okay. I don't know what to make of this scene, man. So this is supposedly a real scene that happened, like from real life. They would use police intimidation, but it was a large black man. And I think that this is very telling of racial politics from 1980, where it's like just the appearance of a large black man is enough to supposedly instill so much fear in Skip that he nearly confesses. Right, right. It's very uncomfortable through a contemporary lens. Mm -hmm. And I think all the more so because this film doesn't have an interest in addressing race in any other capacity. There's this and then the scene actually where we mentioned that Steve goes off with Stuart. Before that happens, they're intimidated by a group of, I think the script says Puerto Rican thugs. Right, you got Mary Poza. Right. And that's it. All the other characters are white, so we we only have uncomfortable racial interactions. Well, here's the thing, though. So, okay, this scene happened in real life. Okay, you could maybe argue, okay, well, in this scene, our point of view is from either Skip or Steve or both. So we, neither one of them know why this man is doing this. It's true, yeah. From a film perspective, from a pure narrative perspective, I do think that Friedkin owes the audience an explanation of it. Because we're not even really, like, the film isn't told from Steve's POV. We are all, like, is it omniscient? Like, we're omniscient narrators? Yeah. So I think it owes us an explanation for this as to why, even a conversation between cops, or, like, seeing this man get into his outfit, (laughs) quote-unquote. Right, put on his own costume. So you can say, yeah, this really happened, but you shouldn't have to tell us that for this scene to make sense. And it doesn't make it sense. It doesn't make sense otherwise. No. Yeah. Well, there's something interesting happening in this scene, too, where they tell Skip, like, he needs to masturbate for them. Yes. Oh, yeah. For me, there's this parallel that it makes between, like, the axe in the leather bar and the axe in this um, space, right? Oh, right. The consensual yeah. versus the coerced. Exactly. And so it's like, it's contrast by parallel, right? It's like saying like queers have created this space where they play with these sorts of BDSM, but you do it in real life. Right. Oh, yeah. okay. So 
let's ponder here. <laughs> so, so maybe they have the black man dressed up in this jock strap and a cowboy hat to come and beat them because they're like, well, you're in this SM leather scene. This is what you like. So we have to adapt our interrogation methods to your lifestyle. Uh, maybe. You chose this. This is on you. You're the reason that we're doing this to you. We're speaking your language through interrogation. Yes. Because, Andrew, you had mentioned before that the implication here is that they rape him to get a confession out of him. Did he? I don't, I don't read that. <laughs> I don't read it that way. Okay, then never mind. I don't know where I heard that from. <laughs> oh, my God. No. But what they are doing is asking him to, like, perform these acts, you know, yes. for their pleasure, for their voyeurism. Do you remember early in the film where the gay character says, oh, well, I pick up men because I have ego issues and you have whatever kind of issues. There's a way in which the queer people in this film, the out ones anyway, are so much more self-aware. Yes. Mm -hmm. Than their street counterparts. Street counterparts like don't know why they they beat up people. Don't know why they do the things they do. Yeah, and it's I think because queer people have created the safe space for us to engage in these things that we have a, a greater sense of our own or awareness about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm going back to trace your comment about how there's a serial killer on the loose, and these men are still doing that, and how we could look through one negative gaze where it's like, well, oh, well, these these gay men are just so cock hungry that they'll do anything. They don't even care if they're being picked off. But I kind of like that idea where there's also the opportunity to seek solace within a defined space where you can feel safe, even though there is someone preying on you. Mm -hmm. The queer spaces in this film aren't dangerous it's actually when people leave the queer yes. space when they go back to right. the hotels i mean i guess you could say the person who gets killed in the park is the exception but for the most part but well no you you, you could consider the park its own queer safe space because that's clearly a cruising spot mm -hmm. right and I think thinking of it this way, like it links the film really to one of Friedkin's other films, Boys in the Band, which is often critiqued as, you know, just gay men being terrible to one another. But I think one of the ideas at Foregrounds is that they're kind of toughening each other up, right? They're creating a space in which you can experience these negative affects and kind of deal with it there among other queer people uh, so that you can survive the straight world. Oof. Apparently, too. This is an article that I found. I, I, I want to say it was in, um, uh, I don't want to credit it without saying it, but apparently Friedkin is on record of mentioning like his doing research on queer sex when researching boys in the band. And apparently he shows like outward disgust at sex acts among mm. the queer community. And is uh, he has a blase disregard for the gay rights activists. Now, granted, this was probably in 1970 and maybe it was a weird interview at the time. And so I think though that this person is feeding that into their perception of why like why the fuck would this guy who clearly didn't have a respect for this community make this film of all things which is about killing gay men right right, right. which then when you contrast the way that james franco talks about his intentions with making interior leather bar seems way way worse when you're talking about a film that came out in what 2014 the bulk of interior leather bar is people asking why is james franco doing this <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least freaking I think we've talked earlier about how he didn't maybe seem as aware of what some of the problematic aspects of this film are, but he he at least understood that he was making a thriller and that it was set within the gay community and that he was trying to deceive audiences by making the identity of the killer a little bit complicated and murky. Yeah. And then you contrast that with Franco being like, well, I don't really know why we're doing this, but I do need to make a student film to get my degree. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> God. I mean, if y'all are really curious, Interior Leather Bar is, you can rent it on an Apple TV for like three bucks, and it's literally an hour long, but I would not recommend it. It's not worth it, no. <laughs> okay, so I'll confess that this is the part of the film where I start to lose a little bit of interest. No, sorry, one last thing about this police thing, though. Okay. After they're doing the interrogation, they come back and they're like, by the way, the prints don't match. And it's like, why you didn't asshole. you check the prints first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a testimony to the ineptness of the way that they're handling this, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not so subtle condemnation. And I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive, but I do think the condemnation of the police forces treatment of the gay community, it's not exactly, but it's almost enough of like a support for the gay community to where it's like the film is taking a stance, at least in that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're more or less going to leave the gay community behind at this point. So we activate the clue that Da Vinci left with Detective Lafransky, who is played by, as you've mentioned, Trace, real-life police detective Randy Jurgensen in mm-hmm. a cameo. So Da Vinci mentioned that she heard that the killer was singing during one of the murders, and this somehow manages <laughs> to lead them to Stuart Richards, who is a musical student with ties to the Columbia professor who was killed earlier. Well, because they get the yearbook, right? Like the yearbook from Columbia, and they ask him to look for people that I guess have the same look, and he he recognizes <laughs> Stuart, I think, from when he saw him under the bridge. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it, it's a, <laughs> no, again, this is your giallo aspect. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Like, I went into the forest, and a bird talked to me, and it led me to a cottage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so enter Stuart richards who is played by richard cox so we have actually seen him playing the killer in at least one of the murders yeah and Stuart has daddy issues and internalized homophobia boys now it, it the actor that plays his dad is the dubbed voice of the killer mm. which just adds an extra level of hmm to this right mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent so what do we make of the daddy issues and the internalized homophobia? Do you relate it back at all to the the semen without sperm? I'm not going to lie to y'all because, again, this is my first time watch. By this point, I had forgotten about the sperm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a scene early on where Nancy and Steve are in bed and she says, like, your father called and he gets a really, like, forlorn look on his face? Oh, gosh, maybe. Oh, my God. Well, now I wish I remembered that because that would make more sense. <laughs> I feel like it's set up that Steve also has daddy issues. Oh, so my God. gays with, with really butch, masculine, anti-queer fathers. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones you got to watch out for. Mm, yeah, yeah. I did see some interesting readings of this where they were like, oh, well, this just adds to the murkiness because we're not sure if Stuart is killing people at his dead father's ghostly invocation or if he's doing it because his dad didn't approve of his queer lifestyle and i was like oh i read it as the latter firmly dad didn't approve of me and i kill to work out my gay issues well i I read it as like a take on psycho right that he has internalized his dead father's voice his persona Mm -hmm. um and he kind of like emerges whenever he feels guilty about having sex Mm mm-hmm because you haven't that he's still writing letters to him like 10 years later that he's not sending. So there seems to be some sort of like real internalization of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I do love that he has that roommate friend slash maybe lover who's just like, oh yeah, his dad's been dead forever. I'm just hanging out in this room. (laughs) It's weird, right? Because in the park bench scene, I was like, okay, well, that's clearly a hallucination. (laughs) Yeah, he has to because he was dead 10 years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we should say that like the father says, you know what you have to do. Like that is the phrase that he seems to have instilled in him. Well, sometimes Joe and I will chat when we're watching movies, and he and he was like, I'm really interested to see what you think of the ending. And honestly, like, with this scene, I was like, all right, cool, so this is the killer. Like, Yeah, like, we're almost done. With the exception <laughs> of that weird fourth wall-breaking final shot, like, this all seems pretty cut and dry to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, unless you have anything more to say about the dead, then we can introduce the wrench into those plans. Yeah. Because before we can get to any kind of climax, so yes, uh, Steve does start to trail Stuart and follow him around, and they go suntanning at one point, which is very fun. But we also have to get a little bit of an altercation with Ted. So everybody remember Ted. He's the neighbor from next door that we haven't seen in ages. Like an hour almost. (laughs) And actually still don't see. We don't see Ted again. He's gone. We meet his jealous roommate slash, oops, boyfriend, Greg. Played by Dexter's dad, James Remarch. <laughs> I was so surprised when he popped up. I was like, oh my god, it's Dexter's dad! Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has, sadly, some long hair that Trace doesn't find appealing. Nope. But he does wear some very cute briefs, which I coveted a little bit. <laughs> From the neck down, perfect. <laughs> so he's a header. Reverse header for you. From the scalp down, perfect. <laughs> oh gosh. Paper bag it. Oh no. <laughs> This is supposed to be because like we see the angry side of Steve in this scene, right? It yeah. could double as, oh, he's a protective lover of his newfound love interest, Ted. Mm-hmm. Or he's now reached a point where he can't come to terms with the homosexual love he feels for Ted and is now acting out in violence. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't really become violent until he's called a cocksucker. Yeah. Right. Yep. Oh, yeah. And that's the key right there. Nothing worse than a man be- being accused of being a cocksucker, right? I also wrote in my notes at this point where he breaks into the apartment, I wrote, gays have a lot of books. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's a playwright, so it does kind of make sense. But, Every, but like, Stuart has so many books. Yeah. <laughs> All these well-educated gay white men who just keep getting themselves into trouble. <laughs> Joe, we need Kill by Kill to do an episode episodes on cruising. <laughs> they can really pick apart these sets. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the shoes, talk about the playwright, yeah. Uh, Um, Not on their bookshelf is the Velvet Rage. Clearly not worked through some of their internalized homophobia. Oh, dear. It would have been all the rage at that point, though, right? Like, the Velvet Rage would have been the book to Mm -hmm. have. What's the Velvet Rage? (gasps) Oh, um, so it's kind of a self-help. It's actually really relevant to this. It's kind of a self-help book for gays, and it basically looks at the effects of uh, shame on you when you're a child and you know knowing that you're wrong before you even have language for it mm-hmm. so this idea of like becoming um the best like the best little boy in the world as a way of offsetting your feeling that you'll eventually disappoint your parents um oh. is part of growing up queer and um part of our aggression towards other gay men is really rooted in our own self-loathing oh my god well, I want to read this now. I mean, is it, is it, is it dated now? <laughs> yeah, a little, it will be a little bit, but you'll be amazed at yeah. how relevant it still feels. I think that's really fascinating. 
Because well, I think yeah. if you grow up in the most liberal household and your parents, you know, cheerleaded you um, in any, you know, your first boyfriend, whatever, you are still living a culture <laughs> that tells you that right. you're, yeah. you know, a monster. Yeah. Because you're not fulfilling the things that you should be doing if you weren't a gay man. Right. And so yeah. it's kind of about the ways that gay men overcompensate in order to okay. deal with our shit. Yeah. We can cut this out if this is, like, not appropriate. But, like, because I, I, I say all the time, I'm always like, I hate the gays so much. <laughs> like, they frustrate me so much. But, I mean, it's a community that I'm a part of, and I do love the community. But they, I'm sure, like, what queer folk do to overcompensate can manifest in really toxic yep. and borderline vindictive ways. And so it, mm-hmm. when I say I hate the gays, it's kind of in good fun. Right. But it's usually in reaction to things like that. The, this book has made me a lot more forgiving towards people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's trying to explain why you may feel the way you do. Yeah. I, I'm going to seek this out as soon as we're done with this recording, because I'm, I'm, I really, like, that sounds like a fascinating read to me. Yeah, I think you'd like it. <laughs> uh, but really, after this scene, we're kind of done with that character and the Ted storyline until the very end. So we dedicate all of our remaining attention on following Stuart around until the culmination, where Steve follows Stuart to Morningside Park in the middle of the night, it is dark, they are by themselves, it seems like they might hook up, and they even start to disclose, but eventually they each bring out their knives, and Steve manages to stab Stuart before he can be stabbed. Plus the amazing line, hips or lips. Mm-hmm. The ultimate in cruising lines. <laughs> yes. I, I didn't go back to see, because apparently it's supposed to be where it's like, it could be perceived upon watching it that Steve does attack first oh i think he does he does okay that's right that's right like yeah sort says he attacked me and he's totally right Mm -hmm. yeah which again that casts more doubt on like this entire Mm -hmm. ordeal i almost wish in this case that we hadn't been able to recognize stewart quite as clearly and i wish that there was a little bit more uncertainty as to whether he was the killer because then it would have made it more impactful even that steve does end up attacking him because it could just be Mm. oh he's internalized this order that he has to solve the case but also that he has really embodied this violence and he'll just exact it on any queer man Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. but you can still read it as oh this man gets him into a sexually compromised position right after he just attacks someone for being called a cocksucker Mm -hmm. and then he stabs him right Ain't no better way to prove your masculinity than brandishing a phallic weapon and stabbing a gay man. Mm-hmm. All this to say, let's bring back the phrase party size. <laughs> <laughs> but like what kind of party? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, like, are we talking a party for 10 or are we talking like an intimate party? <laughs> exactly, exactly. A Donner party? What is this? Whoa. <laughs> we already covered Ravenous. Too soon? <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> Not soon enough? Both, yes. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> so, I mean, this movie is basically done at this point, except for the fact, kind like... Of, but, like, we, we do learn that, um, well, unless we want to go deep conspiracy theory, that Stuart's fingerprints were in one of the murders, so he definitely did the murder in the video booth. Yes. Right? But then they kind of, um, kind of want to pin the other murders on him, which, again, it really feels this is like eerie echo of well, Paul Bateson, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's echoing that. Because, like, yeah, where, where he, he was never impl- he was implicated but never convicted. And so I'm wondering, because, I mean, Freakin wrote this screenplay on top of directing it. Mm-hmm. If after talking to him, he was like, 
well, it probably was multiple murderers. So let's right. do that. Can I? Um, I have a, an interview that I read um, mm-hmm. with Friedkin about this kind of like ending. He, okay, he says the question is um, if he resists resolution at the end of his movies, and Friedkin says there is no resolution. I don't resist it. Cruising is a film about a series of murders that took place uh, to which there are no clear answers. They pretty much knew who did one or a couple of the murders, but not all of them. I don't know. I find that really interesting. Well, I do too, because it's also like, well, if we find one murderer in this movie, it's not going to cure homophobia. It's not going to prevent like hate crimes from happening. And I almost like that as a thing. It's like, yeah, there's no resolution because it hasn't been resolved yet. And it probably never will. As much as we like to hope that, you know, homophobia will go away. It's not going to go away. It will get better. Yeah. It will get better, but it's not going to go away. Absolutely. And I think the horror um, in its classic forms is a containment narrative, right? It tells us that like craziness just happens every now and then, right? It doesn't say it's something endemic to American culture, which I feel like this film is saying that. Yeah. I actually have a quote from famed film critic Robin Wood from his book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. And he talks about how, I can't remember the term that he uses. It's something along the lines of like, the film is deliberately messy about its resolution of who is a killer and who isn't. Mm. And he wrote, the film suggests then that there are at least two killers and could be several that we don't have to feel we know who the killer is because it could be anyone and that the violence has to be blamed on the culture, not on the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm. I do want to bring this back also to the idea that you both said, oh, well, we know for sure that Stuart was involved in the one murder because they have his fingerprints. But we're also forgetting that this film is making a very distinct commentary on the police. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely no indication that, particularly since the captain was directly told to wrap this case up in whatever means necessary, that that fingerprint could have been planted after they caught Stuart. And it's ambiguous for ambiguity's sake. So really quick, so just wrapping this all up and we can continue this discussion. So yeah, basically, Stewart's done. He he will, if he confesses, he'll do eight years in prison (laughs) for all these murders. (laughs) (laughs) Ted is dead. Mm -hmm. And then Steve goes home. And while Nancy is trying on his clothes, Steve looks in the mirror and then breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience before we cut to a shot of New York and then fade to black. Yeah, but can we also acknowledge that Steve is shaving off his literal beard? Yeah. Oh! (laughs) He's, like, taking off his beard as she's putting on, you know, Mm -hmm. masculinity. Oh my god, my mind is blown. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Even this idea, like, he has brought in a polluted or corrupting influence into her Garden of Eden, which is, you know, again, framed by these fucking luscious plants and this open giant window, and then she puts on these perverted items of clothing that have caused so much damage throughout the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. And just to think, next year she'd be doing Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> I love Karen Allen. I, I do, do wish she had more to do in this film, but I really think that her role is to be this boring signifier of heterosexuality. I agree. Which, as we've talked about, is so amazing. Well, so then, though, as he's shaving <laughs> off his beard, though, he's still staying with her. So where do y'all think... Well, he does say, I have something so important to tell you. I want to tell you everything or something to that effect. Yes, absolutely. I... Back up one second, I'm curious if you guys read this the same way. When Paul Sorvino's character surveys the the death of uh, of Ted, there's that lingering shot on him that I think suggests that he thinks that Steve did it, right? Yes. 100%. That's where the distrust of, oh, is Steve now a killer as well? 
That's the thing. You could end this movie at the hospital scene. Like, after that, cool, congratulations, we're done. And I think maybe that's, too, why Ted's death hit so hard is because it's like, wait, what? Why are we still here? Why, Why are we killing movie? this person? Right. <laughs> right, right. And so earlier when I said, oh, it's cut and dry, it's Cooley Stewart. Yes, not. <laughs> it's not, but only because of these last two scenes, and obviously that's intentional, but it's just like, I mean, I can imagine seeing this in 1980 and being like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pissed. <laughs> I got the impression, yes, that, that Edelson was like, um, huh. Cool. That's odd. <laughs> How can we pin this on Stuart what also? What was the name of that address again? Oh, <laughs> yeah. cool, cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. But you can also say, oh, well, no, it's also his angry, jealous boyfriend. As I was watching, I was like, okay, well, clearly his jealous boyfriend did it. And then I thought about it. And I was like, well, obviously with the last shot, you know, it's like, oh, wait. The film's yeah. trying to make me think Pacino did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And both answers are correct. Because <laughs> what we know of Greg is that he also is a hothead with a penchant for violence. And he's jealous of his boyfriend's infidelity. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, because he's done it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wish that we didn't lose so much of these interesting nuance bits that we have in these last two scenes, as well as that first half. It's when we turn our attention to Stuart and it just becomes a very straightforward police procedural that I think, Mm -hmm. ah, this film isn't doing as interesting work. And I wish that it recognized where its most valuable elements are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and that's too like, okay, look, let's pretend like this, this movie was 40 minutes longer. The footage didn't get cut. I don't think this movie, well, it's weird. Like, I want more from it, but I don't think it needs to be longer, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I did make the joke that this is an hour and 40 minute movie that feels like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't get that from it. I, I, I do think it drags in this, like, transition from Act 2 to Act 3 a bit with the police procedural stuff. But, I mean, I, I will tell you, the first half of this movie, I was like, cool, oh, yeah. I'm along for this ride. Yeah, I think it helps too. Like watching it now, it's a real time capsule of a film, right? Mm-hmm. Like this really world is. will never exist. I mean, I mean, sadly, a lot of those men that you saw in the leather bar probably died in the eighties. Oh yep. yeah, and so it's a very weird snapshot of a place in time. It's the same reason I love Taxi Driver, you know, because mm-hmm. right. that world Let's... will not exist again. It's not only a depiction of New York at its seediness, right, before it was cleaned up. And I've heard people reference it to, oh, it was Disneyfied so that it could become a tourist attraction. Yeah. For a queer community, like one of the reasons that it's been reappraised and almost embraced with love is because when we look, especially at these club scenes, this depiction of unbridled sexual enthusiasm and eroticism. It's unvarnished by the AIDS epidemic that would come. And particularly during COVID, you look at it and you're like, oh my God, being this close to gay people and just being able to dance and drink and party. And I think also it's a scene that doesn't exist anymore, right? Because gay bars are closing because we rely on apps to meet people now. So I'd like to refer to this film as it's almost caught in amber. Like it's so 1980, but there's something that's so beautiful about that at the same time. We talked about this in um, Scream Queen, but there's this like halcyon moment that happens at the end of Disco and the start of the 1980s before the AIDS crisis. That it was this sort of magical moment, right? And I feel like this film is is there. And for as much as we talk about like the sex scenes in the film, 
also when you scan the crowd at this bar there's men hugging each other you know mm-hmm. what i mean and it's a real community it's not like zombie drones wandering a bathhouse it's real <laughs> kind of like joy and friendship and camaraderie as well yes that's fascinating because yeah, I mean, I've always considered, you know, okay, gay bars are the safe haven. Like it's a place where you can go and not be judged. It's with your community. But Joe, what you were saying about gay bars are closing, not just because of the pandemic, but also just because, I mean, pre-COVID, people were, are meeting on apps. Mm-hmm. I've met so many gay men who were like, oh, I don't like to go to clubs because that's not my scene. Because yeah. I feel like, and this is a generalization, but I feel like there's a perception of the club scene that's like, oh, it's a bunch of superficial, bitchy queens. And it makes a lot of people who are uncomfortable, especially as we as a community are already self-conscious enough as it is about our looks and our emotions and how we are. And so, yeah, you're right. I think it's fascinating that, you know, in 1980, like, the bars were the place where you could go. Like, you had to go there. You didn't have any other option. I mean, I'm sure there were, but, like, that's the big one. Mm -hmm. And now we're at a time where that's shifting away. I mean, I don't think gay bars are going to be wiped out. That's not going to happen. I love going to the gay bars. But (laughs) they don't have the same significance for the majority of the community i think that they did back then right right we didn't have as a firm a line between sexual spaces and sort of just social spaces for queers you know they were kind of like one in the same and now it's like i I go here to be with my friends and i go here to have sex yeah but that wasn't always that way and i think we get that in this film I mean, one of the other interesting things here is that this is a segregated space still. So we did talk about how it's still mostly white men. There's no women at all. Like, if you think about it, this film has a female character, Mm -hmm. unless we're counting our sex workers at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. So this is a very male, like, masculine-dominated world. And there's something to be said for leaving that behind so that queer members of all shades and sizes and letters can come together and intermingle. I think one of the other things that we see is a fracturing of that space. So kind of what you're talking about, Andrew, which is in this movie, people would come here for the community, but also to fuck. (laughs) Whereas nowadays we have bathhouses and we also have dance clubs, but we also have pubs that do drag race trivia. And we've got bookstores that do poetry readings and this kind of thing like in a way we can look at it as a positive thing because our community is more welcomed and we have co-opted other spaces and made them feel inclusive but i think there's still that sense of loss yeah and that's also the why i think i will include our generation i will include especially generation z where it's almost like a lack of respect for your elders like i've taken for granted so many times while again we still have a long way to go as a community i take it for granted so many times like the opportunities I have now as a gay man because of what gay people before me have had to go through. Uh uh And that's why I think watching something like this, even though it doesn't delve, I mean, no, it does actually, how the cops treat them. (laughs) It's important to have something like this and watch it and know about it because even though I wasn't alive in 1980 and I don't know what it was like to go through the AIDS crisis, I respect the men and women and everyone in between that did live through that and did fight for that and helped and fought where we were today to get to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it's easy for young younger generations to forget that and disrespect the elders, also not even knowing. But I think it's also important for us to teach them. Right. And myself yeah. included. Like, I mean, I, I learn things on this podcast every week. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I, was, when I was, like, coming out, I do feel like a responsibility to learn about things. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I, I like, I had a responsibility to seek out Paris's burning and to, like, yeah. understand these things. And I don't know that that exists today. 
I don't think as much, or maybe not in the same capacity. I think I felt like if I didn't know those things, I didn't feel like I was part of the community, but I don't think that's true now. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I, again, look, I mean, we have kids, and this isn't the case everywhere, obviously, but like we have kids coming out when they're in elementary school. Sure. Yeah. It's a different world. It's not that way everywhere. I mean, again, like if you live in a big city, that's probably going to be more common. If you live in, you know, the Bible Belt, that's not going to be as common. Right. But we also have the internet. Right. Right. So. And I was coming out and they're like, what do you mean you've never seen Salmonio and Rebel Without a Cause? Like that's yeah. like a classic gay re- But now there's a lot more representation. So it's not like I... You have to go kind of scavenging for the scraps in the past. Right. That's true. You don't have to get a membership to like TLA and get it mail delivered. I, I think that's true though, right? You could have a listicle. Oh, the 10 seminal queer texts you have to see in terms of like film. Well, now there's a lot more for the picket. It's true. Let me send you an IndieWire article that says <laughs> the essential queer horror films you need to watch. But here's the thing too. So many of queer cinema, especially, I mean, even going back to like, like looking at John Waters and stuff, it's very um, rough. Mm-hmm. And we unfortunately also live in a generation where it's like, oh, it's black and white. I don't want to see that. Oh, it's on film, not digital. I don't want to see that. It looks old. Mm-hmm. It looks yeah, gross. It's so true. And unfortunately, that is a quality, an aesthetic quality that it embodies a lot of queer cinema from this time period. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate. I mean, not unfortunate that, that that is the case, but it's unfortunate that a lot of people refuse to watch it solely based on that fact. Right, right. Well, I do think that's one of the contributing factors to Cruising's historical legacy is that this wasn't a film that was made on the margins, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was a big budgeted right directed by a famous director and released to mainstream theaters that whether you like it or not, whether it is controversial, whether it is homophobic, to me, this is seminal queer horror. It's a really important mm-hmm. text in our history. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah, and what I come away with from this film, my, my kind of counter reading is that so many of the, the killers, like Stewart, seems like a very well-adjusted gay man, right? He's you know, mm-hmm. majoring in music and theater and, you know, kind of pursuing his dreams. Um, and yet, I think this film wants to say, like it did with Boys in the Band, that, like, even in the most sort of, like, out gay, there is this sort of self-loathing, you know? Yeah. And that that, that you have to kind of deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Way to end it on a downer, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do like this movie. I do think that the conversations that we can have about it are arguably more fascinating than the film itself. I'd rather have the conversations than watch this again tomorrow, you know? Sure. Yeah. I appreciate a film that swings, you know, for the fences, which mm-hmm. I believe is yeah. a sports metaphor. And so even in the film's like failures, I, I appreciate it. You know what I mean? It's trying to do something different. You know, we, we kind of lauded um, Fincher's uh, Zodiac Killer for being, you know, a film about the messiness of investigation and how yeah. crimes go unsolved. And, and that's the nature of it. I, I feel like this film was trying to do something similar. It's true. Only so much earlier. Yes, 27 years earlier. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It, it is a harder script to write, right? Yes that says like we don't know like sometimes there's just evil in the world and that kind of thing yeah absolutely and i mean of course you could always have the argument well it's a straight man telling a queer story but unfortunately the story is really about steve not about the queer Mm -hmm. people in it they're they're merely window dressing you could argue well and i joked that we were going to end this by me asking the two of you could cruising get made in 2020 and then we had a funny joke about how we would turn it into a gay porn parody and that was lovely of rebecca yeah (laughs) 
But I think the reality is, is that if this movie was made today, we would be more demanding. Like, I don't think we would protest it. I think we would be demanding that there would have to be queer creatives more mm-hmm. integrally involved. It in would it. still be scrutinized the fuck out of. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Even as a heterosexual man, like, I feel like Friedkin is a good observation, observer of, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, of this subculture because uh, especially yeah. if you guys have ever seen the beginning of um, boys in the band it is the best depiction of cruising i've ever seen in cinema oh, really really now, okay. and you're talking about his his the seven the next yeah seven. just the first yeah. five minutes of it i was like wow that's actually kind of how it is he, he gets the kind of subtleties of it no i actually did want to watch that before recording this but it's not streaming anywhere there is a blu-ray but i couldn't get it in time yeah <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess the the, the person that's a good, oh, God, I hate saying this, is like a Ryan Murphy type, uh, uh, you know, uh, American Horror Story. Yeah. But it's so glossy and overstylized that I feel like it, this one benefits from the, the grittiness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, the sheen and the overstylization of it, that, that, that's just Ryan Murphy in general. I mean, say what you want about Ryan Murphy. The benefit of him is that he is at least exposing yes. the queer world to more people as messy as his narratives are absolutely yeah i agree for me it's just the wrong kind of messy i'll take cruising messy not ryan murphy messy that's fair fair (laughs) i feel like he would be like the the mr vidanvers of our rebecca story (laughs) you know (laughs) oh my god some young twink like arrives at his mantelay and (laughs) i cannot get over mantelay that is hilarious (laughs) You're not winky enough. You don't fill out these white briefs enough. I'm the twink of the house now. And Mrs. Danvers would be like, look at these Andrew Christians. I can see my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Like putting them on the twink's face. (laughs) Oh, boy. You can see my hand through it. It's sheer. If you didn't get any of those, go back and listen to the Rebecca episodes. And go support Andrew Christian, because I don't know. (laughs) Or don't. <laughs> oh, man. Do you have anything more to add? No, I think like we hit everything that I um, am compelled by in this film. Good job, awesome. us. Well, listeners, let us know what you think. If this is your first time watch, or if you've been one of the 50 million people that has asked us to cover it. <laughs> I thought this was a really fun episode, actually. I really enjoyed doing this. <laughs> yeah. But before we announce what we're covering next week, Andrew, where can people find you on social media if you want them to find you? Sure, absolutely. Um, so my website is ad is in David Scahill s c a h i l l dot com, um, and I'm also on Twitter, uh, Andrew Scahill. Excellent. Lovely. Well, and before I do our standard housekeeping, I do want to say thank you so much for coming on to this. It was really a pleasure to talk to you about this film and to kind of get your to kind of to get your insights on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell my students like it's my job to talk about movies, so I can't imagine a better life to be honest. So happy to do it. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> But yeah, if y'all want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We do love Apple Podcasts. It is our 100th episode, y'all. Give us some reviews to tell us how much you love us. If you hate us, yeah. don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Save that for 101. Yes. Oh, I have one other thing. The yeah. DVD of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, will be coming out. And we have some special content on there. Uh, we have a panel discussion um, over Zoom about uh, fear of femininity in the horror film. Ooh, oh, wow. joined by a couple of guests, including um, Issa Mazay, who did uh, the film Cam. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. With that. So um, it's a really wonderful panel, and I'm proud to be part of that film. Nice. Awesome. And Cam is great, too. And listeners, if you haven't seen Cam, please go watch that immediately. If you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, we've got episodes this month on Run, The Witches, The Craft Legacy, um, The New Mutants. And the new mutants. <laughs> Always forget it. <laughs> uh, we, we are still recording this before, we're recording this after election day, but before the election has been tallied. But we will have an audio commentary on the purge election year. It's going to be cathartic no matter what. Yeah, no matter what, we're going to do it. <laughs> but Joe, what mm-hmm. are we checking out next week for episode number 101? All right, we are kicking off triple digits with... Not the Candyman that you thought or expected. No, folks, we don't do normal things like that. (laughs) We're going to look at Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. Now, listeners, y'all might be like, what the fuck? A, we were going to time this with Candyman, the new one, but that's we were like, we just pulled the trigger. It is directed by Bill Bill Condon, Condon. noted queer director who would go on to direct. Uh, uh, He did uh, Dreamgirls, right? And Breaking Dawn Part 1 and 2, the Twilight Saga. I didn't realize that. And he did Gods and Monsters too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Love that movie. Which we'll cover that one day too, even though it's not technically horror, but it's about James Whale, so it counts. So uh, come back next week for Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. And on that note, we can cross out cruising. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers 100 episodes! made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast congratulations if you like our programming consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts such as creepy horror queers the boo crew scp archives nightlight margaret's garden nightmare on film street and more <laughs>